Hello and welcome to Life on the Land, a Crazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional Australia. Hi, I'm Sky Manson, and as we all wind down towards the end of 2021 and prepare ourselves to indulge in Christmas after a year that's been testing and challenging in so many ways, the Grazy Her and Life on the Land team would like to send you off on your summer break with a rolling recap of our favourite podcast interviews. Each Monday morning for the next six weeks, one team member will pick an episode that has touched them personally and we'll replay it for you here. This week, we start with my personal favourite, Christine Ferguson. Not each episode in our summer series will have its own fresh introduction, but as I'm here, I'd love to tell you the story about why I chose Christine's as my favourite. I interviewed Christine during our first season of the podcast in September 2020 and her gentle recount of her life and its weighty difficulties really touched me. How could a person not be a grumpy shell of the person they once were after suffering all that she has, I thought. But Christine is wise and she's generous with her wisdom. She doesn't sugarcoat life's circumstances and I really did feel so lucky to have interviewed someone who could so accurately and articulately detail how a love for life on the land can deeply counter all the adversities along the way. Please know that this episode talks about some challenging issues, including domestic violence. If it raises anything for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. I guess I don't separate life on the land from just life. I don't separate who I am from what I do. So I think... I just love getting older, Sky. I just, I know as a woman we're not supposed to, but oh, it's so underrated because, I mean, there's been so much happen and things that I thought I could never survive, I could never recover from. Well, with time I have, and there'll be more come definitely, and I'll have to recover from that. And I know that I will. And so I guess. Now I have a very peaceful acceptance of the things that come and rattle my cage and when the rug gets pulled from under my feet, I sort of accept that and, and it's just part of my journey and and the fact that it's in farming or in life is there's no differentiation for me. It's just this is my life, it's my journey and, and it's all just one big beautiful mess. Do you believe you would have that wisdom and that acceptance had you not been living on the land? Possibly not. It's a very natural life, isn't it? Like you're in the elements and you're you're sort of pushed around by the seasons and the elements every single day. I think it builds an acceptance in us and and a a peace, just that being part of the natural world and, and not isolated from it and living I guess an artificial, what I call an artificial existence, which is probably unfair, but that's that's how I see a life in a city, living in a an apartment seems a very it's very out of touch with with the natural world to me. I feel like you've always had such a strong pull towards the natural world, 
Where did that come from? I don't know. I think I was just, I don't know. I, I grew up on a, a farm, a small farm, and um, I have always loved animals to, to a fault. And right from when I was really little, you know, I would go missing and be found in a dog kennel um, or um, or wandering around in, in paddocks and, you know, my family tells stories of losing me in long long grass and that sort of thing because I was just always out in it and um, just really curious, I think, just just sort of following my nose outside and, and following a dog or a horse or something or other and, and I... I don't really know where it comes from. I think it's I think it's innate in all of us, really. It's just um, I guess I, I had the opportunity and the exposure, perhaps. Growing up, who was it that influenced you the most? Um, that's a pretty hard question. I my grandfather on my father's side was a, a very big influence. Um, he's just um, he's a very different man, I guess, to all other people I knew, he was a, he was an old bushman and he was an amazing stockman, and um, and I sort of used to follow him around a lot, like a bit like a, a pup, and and he um, he really loved the fact that I'd loved what he loved, and so we were very very close. But I think I think equally an influence for me was the books that I read. I would just disappear into books and. And I was always looking for adventures and and you know pioneering stories and life on the land and animal stories and I think that that influenced me greatly as well. What were the books? Oh, there's so many, uh, but um, yeah, right from quite a young age, I was reading things like Kings in Grass Castles and um, Len Beadle stories of traipsing across the outback, and I just I just love those sort of adventures and the idea of people sort of starting with nothing and building building these vast empires of dirt and just the adventures they had on the way um they were the sort of stories I loved so how did you go at school Christine oh I was a terrible student there's there can be no denying every report card said something along the lines of could do better and I spent most of my time looking outside. The idea of being inside was like a, a sentence, like a jail sentence to me. I just wanted to get out. And so how long did you did you last at school? I left at the end of year 10, which wasn't unusual in those days. I'm talking back in the 80s. And uh, I just, um, my mother wanted me to go on and do something more and, and but... Yeah, I just couldn't wait to get out. And as soon as I could, I was sort of out in shearing sheds and working on farms and that sort of work as, as, as quick as I could. So tell me more about that. Like when you were at school, you couldn't wait not to be there. You looked out the window a lot. Were you dreaming of this farming empire that one day you would build? Oh, I don't know if I had the words for it, but I, or the thoughts that I could possibly do that, like... You hear people say today, you know, like it's impossible for a person without a start to, to get a start in farming. And Sky, they've been saying that as long as I can remember. They said it when I was young and, and I think I, I believe that, that it would be impossible for me um, because I didn't have that family start. Um, 
and I think I did believe that for a while and so I probably wasn't thinking as a kid in school about me doing that it was just it was more about just getting out and doing the hands-on stuff you know um, mustering sheep and cows and um, riding horses and bikes and being out in the in the job um, that that was probably where my head was how would you spend your free time or your school holidays during those younger years? <laughs> Looking back, I, I, I find, it seems a bit strange to me now, but the, from the time I was about 12, I would pack up some, some rabbit traps and um, a bit of flour and, <laughs> and billy cans and things and roll a swag and and go out in the hills with my horse and my dog, you know, at 12 years old. And, you know, most holidays I would be doing that. And I'd go out for um, anything from a few days to more than a week, up to two weeks, I think, at times. And I'd just live on the rabbits I could catch and, the, and make little Johnny cakes out of flour. And, and I'd just drink water from a stream lying on my belly next to my horse and dog. And I was just having this amazing adventure. And Looking back at it, I, I just find it amazing. If my kids had asked to do that, I, I don't know if I would have allowed them to. And I'm just so grateful for it because it was it was very formative as a, a young person to be out in the bush on your own and your survival's totally in your own hands. But, you know, my, my parents must have believed that I had enough skills to be able to do that because it wasn't like easy country and it wasn't anywhere close for help I would have had to have ridden for probably well over an hour or or two hours probably to my grandparents house to get help um, if I needed help so it was it and it was rough steep country and I just think now how fortunate I was to have that and how how I, I don't know that I would have allowed my children to do it I love that that is so incredible weren't you scared what about oh, yeah. at night time I remember vividly my first night, on my first few nights, I was terrified, Sky. I don't think I slept a, a wink. I, I had a torch and I flattened the battery in that, you know, every time there was a sound. It was such an experience. And I, I remember that first time really vividly. I was, was terrified. I was, I was camped in an old rabbiter's hut and it had a dirt floor that was full of rabbit holes and, and I didn't really know how to make a fire properly and... I just, I it was it was a terrifying night, and it was I think it was the second or third night when I was gathering wood for the fire and walking back towards the hut, and I just it just dawned on me, and this sounds ridiculous, but it just dawned on me that night was just the same as the day. It's just you couldn't see as well, and it's <laughs> it's as simple as it was, and I can remember. The thought process and just going, oh, oh well, that's all right then. It's okay. I just, I just can't see stuff. And since then, I've <laughs> never been, never was frightened again after that. You know, and that was it. It was all just easy, really, from there. But why didn't you go home after the first night? What, kept, oh, what no, no. allowed you to have another scary night? No, I'm far too proud. <laughs> I couldn't have, I couldn't have gone home and had my brothers stirring me about being frightened of the dark. That wouldn't, I would never have done that. <laughs> I would, no, I, yeah, I just, and I suppose, 
during the day, you know, I felt very safe in the bush, still do. It's my safe place. It's where I go to feel safe and at home and, and comfortable and happy. So how did it come to be that you bought a farm uh, almost as far west as you can go in New South Wales at Wenaring? Yeah, good question. So I grew up around sort of in area around Bathurst in central New South Wales. It was frustration more than anything, you know. I really wanted to buy land. I guess I turned 30 and I had two small children and, and I was married and we had a, a contracting business where we were sort of mostly weed spraying and fencing for other farms and national parks, that sort of thing. And I just, we were looking at, you know, buying like a little farm and I just, I did not want to be a hobby farmer. I just... It was just something about the whole idea of buying a farm, working it on weekends and after work, and I just didn't want it. I, I couldn't see the point. And so I guess I was just trying to work it out. And, and we'd been, husband and I had been working pretty solidly and paying a, a house off in Bathurst. And, and I was always looking at options. And we went right up to the Kimberley and we worked there for a, a, a season and decided that it was livestock we both wanted to do. And... Um, I sort of was looking at different livestock options and I came across the goat industry and I'd worked with goats a bit before, sort of mustering them and that sort of thing, but I hadn't really considered it as a, a business idea. But it was just such an ideal thing for someone without money, you know, because all we had to do was buy the land and then we could muster the goats and then we could fence it all. And it was a start. And so I guess we came to Winaring by... I rang goat buyers and dealers and asked them where their best goats came from, where the most goats came from. And they all sort of said, north of Broken Hill, west of Burke. And so we started looking and, and we found this place that was very run down um, and uh, had been, they'd been trying to sell it for a while. And so we made a, a pretty low offer and, and they accepted it. And then it was... Holy hell, <laughs> we're going to pull these two kids up and, and head to the back of Burke. And uh, it's 250 kilometres west of Burke, 4, 450 north of Broken Hill, north northeast of Broken Hill. And um, it's it's the proper black back blocks. And, and my husband had no experience of the Western country. I'd sort of done a stint after school. I'd always travelled around a lot, but he had no real experience with it and um, no affiliation with it, I guess, would be a fair call and we we sort of once they accepted our offer I, I can remember sitting in our very very nice lounge room in our house in Bathurst and these two little kids and my daughter must have been about nine at the time and and we're like well do we do this or not and in her very beautiful childlike wisdom she said if we don't do it we'll never know if we could have done it and and that was the that was a thing where we all went that's so true let's let's do it and that was it that's so beautiful that's so beautiful. Did you feel like the Mary Durack that you'd read so much about? Ah, uh, a little. I mostly felt trepidation and guilt for taking my children away from their friends, away from everything they knew, into this life because primarily because I wanted to farm. And that stayed with me and still is at times and I still sometimes apologise to them for it and they always say to me that they'd have it no other way now. 
Tell me a little bit about those early days out there and the things you needed to adjust to and what your house was like and how life looked. It was tough, Sky. I won't, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was bloody tough. The house hadn't been lived in for a long time. Um, the sewage had been all leaking under the house. We had no air con to speak of. There was a sort of a thing there that didn't really work. No heating, no insulation in the house. And I hadn't, really, <laughs> this is extraordinary, I hadn't really thought about school for the kids. I'm just like, oh, I guess we do school of the air. But I didn't actually know what that meant. I didn't realise that that was going to be another full-time job for me apart from everything else. And so we didn't have much money, obviously. So um, my husband was sort of staying back around Bathurst for sort of at least six months of the year doing keeping going with the business and the kids and I were out there so I had two kids and a rundown station and um and it was tough I was sort of yeah just we were just trying to survive and it's um first trip to school of the air do was um I took about four and a half five hours I think and just pretty rough roads the whole way you know <laughs> oh, well not the whole way once you could get down to Wilcannia you were right but on the bitumen but you know and my first trip home from a school of the year it had rained on the road between between Broken Hill where I was at the school and and home and we had all sorts of trouble getting home through the mud and there was no one waiting for us to come and pull us out if we were stuck you know and a mailman goes along that road twice a week and so it was all pretty scary but it was Every time, every little win, you know, I got a little stronger, a little bit more confident and, and it's those little wins that, that save us every time, don't you think? Well, yeah, that's the patchwork quilt of your story. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about the wonderful times when you first got there. The wonderful times. Oh, so many. I can remember there was a, a moment when I was um, I was riding back from along the road there and on the property and it was late afternoon, it was golden sun and, you know, the, when you're in the west it's at its best, they like to say, and that's damn right, it's just beautiful. It's just glowing red, this beautiful red soil. And I thought, oh, it's going to be so good and we pay this off. And I thought, no, it's so bloody good now. You're actually doing it now, don't. And I sort of really stopped and thought, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go, oh, it's going to be good when. It's going to be good when we own it. It's going to be good when we've got that fence built. Like, no, it's bloody good now. We're living the life now. So that was a that was a moment, and I think I've carried that through with me since that that moment. This isn't the end of Christine's story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. But now, a word from today's sponsor. RB Sellers is a family-owned Australian brand with family values and community at their core. Inspired by the Australian landscape and the everyday Australian, RB Sellers began in 1996 with the release of the first menswear collection, including its best-selling Burton work shirt. In fact, our guest today, Christine Ferguson, is an RB Sellers customer and was photographed wearing a limited edition Sandy work shirt from last summer's RB Sellers collection on the cover of Grazy Home magazine in 2019. Today, the RB range includes functional and hard-wearing workwear for men and women, plus a collection of casual wear, durable farmwear and kids' wear that's easy to care for and comfortable to put on. 
RV Sellers is committed to remaining the affordable, accessible and fit-for-purpose Australian brand it is so well known for. Your marriage broke down while you were at Winnering. What happened there? Um, it was never what you'd call a, a happy marriage. Um, we were very different people. And, yeah, it, it didn't end well. It ended in a, a domestic violence incident. Um, and everything's harder when you live remote every single bloody thing I guess except COVID um, but um, yeah there it came to a, a head and there was a shot fired which I believe believed at the time and, and I still guess I, I, it was fired at me and I had to run for help um, and that was yeah it was a about a 35 kilometre run slash walk to my neighbour's place in the night in a pair of old Blundstone boots that were a size too big and um, yeah that that was tough Um, and I arrived there and they were away and I think from memory I did know they were away but I I didn't know where else to go and uh, so I got there and the house was all locked and anyway it was all good in the end I sort of worked out how to get in and I was able to, to ring for help but um, that was a, a pretty big moment, I suppose, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm, it's really just so awful to hear that you have had to go through that, that anybody would have to go through that. What what happened from, from that point? Because you still have the farm, don't you? I Did do. Did you leave straight away? No, I... <laughs> No, I I didn't leave and I wouldn't leave. Um, I just figured um, my, my husband had no real, like I said, he had no real affiliation with that Western country and didn't really like it. And I sort of thought, well, if I, my, my kids were going through so much, like they were, they were older, they were in their teens, and, and they were going through this, not just their parents' marriage breakdown, but this horrible thing that had happened. I, my husband was pushing very hard for the property to be sold and I thought I can't let them lose their home as well as have to deal with all this. And I also thought that it wasn't good for me either to lose it and what would I do? And, and so with the help of many people, because I didn't have much money or anything and um, you know, we were just surviving on chasing goats and, uh, God, you know. But anyhow, I, I, um, I had a lot of beautiful people help me and I bought him out and I've still got it. And tell me a little bit about the timelines there. Did you, were you alone? Um, did you still have the business back in Bathurst and did, were you allowed to, to be alone after that terrible incident? Yeah. It was, that was the worst of it. We didn't have the business going back in Bathers, but that's where my husband went back to. So after that night, he he left. But, you know, we, we still had livestock that needed water and we had working dogs and I, I couldn't leave. 
So I was actually, after that incident, I was actually on the station for, I think it was five or six days on my own before my daughter could get there. And um, and I would say that was the hardest, the hardest time in my life to be so shaken, so absolutely shaken and to be there on my own. And But, you know, things things happened and I can remember... Um, Ah, oh, funny things happen, don't they, Sky? But I was I was sitting on the doorstep, and I was just thinking, you know, there's there's no way I can recover from this. There's no way I can get over it. And anyhow, I I got up and walked back into my office, and a bit of paper that I actually had pinned to the notice board above my office had blown down and landed square on my desk, right where in front of where I sit. And I and it was on it was written a. a a thing called attitude. I can't recite the whole thing, but I remember sitting there and reading it and reading, you can't change how people will treat you. You can't change what will happen. All you get to do is choose your attitude. And I guess that was pretty important for me to to get that through my skull at that time was that I had all this sort of stuff happening, but there was nothing I could do about it. I had to accept it and had to deal with it. And and so I sort of picked myself up from there. But I, I did end up with fairly, um, well, I did, ended up with post-traumatic shock. And I didn't know about that. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't understand. But because I was just so busy trying to hold my shit together for my kids. and um, But I was in a bit of a mess. I, I just... <laughs> I was just really just holding it, holding it together, and and it took me quite a few years to get over that. What was it like after your daughter Matilda arrived that five days later? And could did she know that you had post traumatic shock? Did she know what you didn't know? She arrived back there, and you know. I'm, Talking about a, a kid that's, um, I don't know how old she was now. I should know. I think she might have been about 18 or 19. I think she saved me, if I could say that. I don't think she knew about post-traumatic shock, but she knew that I was struggling and she just helped me, you know. She just, I can remember one morning just not wanting to get out of bed not long after the whole thing, and she just like, come on, Mum, on your motorbike, up you go, come on. And, you know, that was crucial to me surviving. But it put a hell of a lot of weight on her, and I I wish I could take that back, but I guess we're very close, and I, I suppose that is the gift to come out of it. When did the fog start to lift for you and you, when were you able to regain a little bit of you back it took a couple of years sky i was pretty messy for a long time i mean i i no one would know like no one everyone would think i was fine but um the other thing is it was difficult because it was such an ugly incident that people don't want to talk about it you know it's but i needed to talk about it and if i brought it up people would sort of you could see them they really cringe because it was it's not a savory thing for people to talk about but geez i needed it so that was awkward. Um, it probably was a few years. It was probably towards the end of 2000, 
yeah, probably about two and a half years, I started to feel better, and I um I actually decided then that I should perhaps sell the place and and do something different. I found another block I wanted to buy, and I thought the best thing was to move on, and so I decided to try and sell, and the sale fell over at the last minute, and I ended up in a another fight to sort that mess out, which took a couple of years, but one in the end. So that was another learning curve, I suppose. You love to write and you're a beautiful writer. During that time, uh, did you write? No. No. I couldn't even read Sky. Now, I'm someone that reads at least a book a week, if not more, and I usually have half a dozen books on the go at one time and I have done for most of my life. And for two years, I read the first page of one book over and over, and I still couldn't understand it. I just, my my head was that messy. So I didn't really write. Um, I tried it um, when I decided to sell, and and towards the end, when I started to feel better, I started trying to write what had happened. But I didn't have the ability to focus on anything. It, it, it was it was like there was just this big cloud in my head and I couldn't sort of think straight. When did you meet the Ginger Ninja? Because I have a feeling that it was around this time that things started to happen there. Yeah, yeah, it was. I've, I've known him for a long time. He's, um, he's our mustering pilot, flies a, a gyrocopter and um, we'd always been good mates and always enjoyed a, a yarn at the pub or whatever and he was one of the few that were really kind to me when all of that happened because it's a, it is, like I say, it's a horrible thing and it's something people don't want to know about. But he was just, he was still a mate and he was really kind. And, um, yeah, but I, I never sort of thought of him that way and I can remember at times my daughter saying, you know, she's like, he really likes you, Mum. I'm like, oh, don't be silly, it's okay, whatever. But um, anyway, it, yeah, but we've been together for quite a while now, so we're good. And lead me through that a little bit. You, What are you guys doing together now? He bought a property about 200 kilometres away from my place at Winaring, which in the scheme of things out there is not that far. It's sort of up near the Queensland border. So I sort of moved some of my gear up there. This place is, it had a beautiful old homestead on the edge of um, big sort of um, flood-out country and... We renovated that house together and it was a really lovely thing to do and still is where we both most feel at home. Um, and we were a sort of a few years with me working my place and going back to his place and we were working together, we were doing a bit of mustering together, sort of that sort of thing. And, um, and he was pretty keen on buying another place together and I was very resistant for a long long time because I just thought I just I just didn't want to be just I just wanted to keep my independence I didn't want to be thought of as um as a farmer's wife I guess as as the old way of that thinking goes I just wanted to still have my place and be doing my thing and it wasn't until 2017 that we, um, I caved and um, we bought a property together in central New South Wales near Grenfell and um, we still held on to our two places out west and um, our place each and 
and we're on a whole new adventure of learning how to crop and live, um, yeah, live on the bitumen. And how's that been for you? The um, you know, the the differences in the farm, the two different the farming operations. Oh, it's great. It's never a dull moment because there's always something going on on, on one of the places and. Um, the ginger ninja's really taken to cropping. He just he loves that, and he um, he's yeah, because he he'd sort of been a contract mustering pilot for a long time, and he'd sort of had enough, you know. And it's only he does have a limited life how long he can do that for. Once you start to get a few years on you, I guess, and and he um, so he's sort of he's growing crops here and having a great time, and it was a it was a difficult. Change, oh, I guess the process of trying to work out how we two very, very independent people amalgamated our businesses and started a new one in a new area and held on to our identity without either one of us feeling like uh, we were losing something. And so we basically, it took us a while and we had to sort of have fairly clear roles on the place. And so generally I tend to be in charge of the livestock end of the operation, in charge is a loose word, but um, I sort of do most of the organising there um, and he looks after the, the cropping operation. But because we mostly grow fodder crops, everything's very interchangeable, but but uh, it's, it's sort of loosely how it works and we've really enjoyed learning something new and a new challenge. It's It's been great. I just want to take a step back for just a minute because um, around the time when you met Greg, there was another upset just around the corner and that was that your house burnt down. What yeah. happened at that time? Um, that was, after, yeah, after we were together. It was a horrible thing. It was one of those, another <laughs> another one of those things you think you'll never get over and you can't survive and, and it turned out to be a catalyst for moving me on. It was totally my fault that the house burnt down. It was an accidental, horrible thing that happened and it happened so goddamn quick. And, yeah, the shock from that, just seeing the house burning is, you because know, I just remember trying, you know, thinking I was walking and then I realised I wasn't getting anywhere and I was actually on my knees, like my legs had gone from under me and I was so physically shocked and distraught and it all just happened so quick and it was over, yeah. Because what people must remember is that this this was at Wanaring and there's no one to come and quickly help you. Um, God, did no. you even get the chance to put a hose on the fire? No, well, that was part of the problem because it's a long story, but my water tank was out of out of water through a series of, it was like a domino effect of one thing going wrong after the other. But luckily for me, um, my neighbours on the southern side were working in their cattle yards and they saw the smoke and so they came. There was nothing they could do but they had a satellite phone because obviously there's no mobile service and and they were able to call um, a few people. So the the local neighbours, the fire brigade, came out but you know there's nothing we could do it's just they just sat with me as it smoldered I guess and that was could you grab anything from the house no no it's so fast so fast guy 
It's like a tinderbox that just went up. I could smell mm. my beautiful polished cypress boards. <laughs> but, you know, through more good luck than good management, I had moved a bit of, of my precious things in the time that that was when Greg and I were doing up the house on his place. And so I had brought, taken some of my things up there. But, um, you know, the, the thing that I lost that makes me the saddest is all the height markings on the kitchen door frame of the kids as they were growing wow. and, and my little visitors that would come and they'd have to get their height measured on the door frame. And, yeah, I, I miss that the most. Oh, that's so sad because everyone can relate to that. I'm sorry for you for that that's... and it all. A lot of stuff happened in that house. Are you sad it's gone? No. Or is it cleansing in a way? It's very cleansing. And, and after it happened, I went back to Greg's place and then and then I came back, it must have been the following day or, or something like that, and I was doing the clean-up on my own. Um, he was mustering elsewhere and it was pretty horrid because I had really rotten old shearers' quarters there that had not been used forever because I'd been in the goat industry I don't need need labor much and um every night I'd often go and just look at the rubble of the house and I was so sad and then one night I was there and I thought oh gee there was some bad shit went down in this house you know like where the whole um, my marriage broke down and and I just remember smiling and thinking that's all gone now that's burnt to ash and it's gone and and I think um in hindsight that losing that house helped me to move on you know and and move on to this new life that um we've built together and and they're still building it's often the way it's often the way that catastrophes tend to be good things in the end yes i think you have to take what you can from it now you you moved to grenfell you, well, you bought your new property at grenfell and that was during the drought but this year it rained at the beginning of the year. I'm so interested to hear what your thoughts are about rain and that moment when it does finally properly rain, what it means for you physically, mentally and environmentally. Uh, it is the best thing, isn't it? Like I'm old enough now and have been through a few droughts and things that um, I, and I know myself well enough to know that I'm, uh, I have to manage my hope Hope can be a wonderful thing, but it can also be very, very difficult if you're like, oh, it's rain, this is great, this, it's all good, and so you're, you're firing along and then you realise, no, that wasn't the rain we were looking for. So for me, when it started to rain here, there was so much of that, oh, is this it? Is this the rain that's going to make the difference? Is this the end of feeding? Is this the end of the drudgery of the slog of the hard stuff? You know, each rain I think, oh, we're a bit closer, you know, and I just I have to manage myself because I'm an optimist and I think I often think things are better than they are. So I was like, no, don't get your hopes up, girl, come on. But physically I guess you just start to feel better. For me I start to look up more and look out more instead of head down and just keep on going. And emotionally you just start to, to find the fun in things a lot more. This property at Grenfell, like it's, oh, it's almost criminal how beautiful it is here when it rains. Like there's waterfalls and they're still running. They've been running for months and 
you know, I, every chance I get I, on a way out of the paddock, I can sneak in and have a look at a waterfall. Who gets that? I'm just luckiest person alive. And tell me about the joy that you're getting from plants, new plants and discoveries, which I'm sure there might be things there that you've never seen before. Oh, so many, so many. And still every chance I get, I'm, I'm up in the hills looking around and we'll usually take our quart pots and have a walk around if we get a bit of time on the weekend and make a cup of tea and look at what's growing and where the water's running. And um, there's so many wildflowers out at the moment. And I mean, I, I've seen big wildflower seasons out west and they're unreal. Um, but this is a different, this is softer and more subtle and you have to go looking, but they're there and there's all sorts of beautiful things because we don't run stock in our hills here and um, there's not many not many ferals. So um, there's all sorts of beautiful plants. I Before I let you go, Christine, I want to ask you about your writing. When did writing come into your life? It's always been there I think I've always written stories right from when I was a little kid and I can remember reading as a I suppose a young woman reading Maya Angelou was it Angelou oh, I've forgotten how to say her name it's criminal <laughs> but anyway I can remember reading that and thinking she wrote the bad stuff beautiful over the course of my life as in everybody's life there's bad stuff and so I, it occurred to me that if I could write it beautiful, then it wasn't something to be feared or sad about. It was just something. And if I could write it in a way that could help people other than myself feel it without and feel the beauty in the struggle, in the bad stuff, then that would be a good thing. I guess that's what I try to do when I write is to write the bad stuff beautiful. When do you do it? Not enough. <laughs> Um, I try of a night to just write a few lines but it doesn't happen every day and it doesn't happen every week um, because often I'm dog tired at the end of the night and I just want to go to bed but I guess when I'm out doing things especially the monotonous fencing or whatever then my mind's going and I'm thinking about not often about businesses I should be thinking but I'm thinking about how to write things that I'm feeling or seeing or experiencing and and so when I get a chance it's usually sitting there on the back burner and and it just spills out but it's not regular sky and I I wish it was but um maybe that's for another chapter in my life well that's my last question for you is there a life for you after farming or will you always be on the land I don't believe I could not be on the land I don't believe that would be a life for me and the two as I said the the beginning the, the two are the same for me what I do and who I am and where I live it's all it's all one is the way I see it I don't believe in retirement for me because it would be retiring from life and I have no intention of that I had no idea that Christine had led such a challenging life and I've got to admit that I was left feeling a little bit heavy after this interview. I told her this and she said to me, oh no Sky, nobody gets out of life unscathed. And then she shared with me a saying from the Ginger Ninja. 
she told me that he says if you leave the car parked in the shed, you don't go anywhere, but you don't get any dints either. And Christine reckons that she's had a few dints, but that's what makes her love getting old and living life. We say thank you, Christine, for sharing your truths with us. If this story has raised any issues for you or someone you know, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Life on the Land is a Grazy Her podcast which is independently produced. So if you're really liking these stories, then please help us by rating and reviewing the podcast in iTunes. And good news, the spring edition of Grazy Her is on sale now. You can buy a copy at your local stockist or maybe even buy a subscription for a friend at grazyher.com.au. We've also been loving the images of you all listening to the podcast, so please keep them coming on Instagram through the Grazy Her hashtag. We'll have another Life on the Land story for you next week, but until then, stay safe and take care.